Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. A cap-and-trade system to address climate change barely clears its first hurdle on Capitol Hill. Its goals draw fire from both industry and eco-advocates, but one Florida town is already finding renewable energy is a huge success. It's really surprising what this has done in terms of employment opportunities, uh, enthusiasm. I've had the head of the uh, Electric Workers Union come up to me and say, gosh, thanks, everybody's got a job. Still, some jobs in the new green economy demand special training and certification in handling hazardous materials. The first question you go to apply for a job, the first question is, have you got your hands whopper? If the answer is no, it's very nice to meet you. If the answer is yes, it's, uh, hey, suit this guy up. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young in Washington, where a sweeping clean energy and climate change bill reached a milestone in Congress. The powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee narrowly approved the bill by Democrats Henry Waxman of California and Ed Markey of Massachusetts. The Waxman-Markey bill's focal point is a cap-and-trade system for controlling greenhouse gases. And that's also the focus of great controversy. Most environmental groups and some businesses support the bill, saying it's the best chance to start cutting emissions at home and get the U.S. into an international agreement at talks in Copenhagen later this year. Other activists say the measure doesn't go far enough and that its trading system gives away too many of the valuable emissions credits. Many industry groups and Republicans fought to kill the bill, and Waxman and Markey faced intense negotiations with moderate members of their own party. Democrats from coal country, the oil patch, and heavy manufacturing states were nervous about the bill's economic impact. Waxman and Markey agreed to give electric utilities and some energy-intensive industries most of the emissions credits they'll need for free in the early years of the trading program. I caught up with Congressman Markey at his Capitol Hill office, and I asked him if that political compromise had left his bill too weak to really fight global warming. Just the opposite. This bill has very strong targets. Uh, A 17 percent reduction in greenhouse gases in the United States by 2020 and over 80 percent by 2050. It is a very ambitious uh, bill. Uh, We're keeping those targets intact. And in addition, we have very strong goals for creation of renewable electricity in the United States, uh, strong new building codes, a 50% improvement in the efficiency of new buildings, and on and on throughout the legislation, historic provisions that will transform the American economy and begin the process of backing uh, imported oil out of our country. But compared to, say, what our our European partners are prepared to do, they're talking about something like 25 to 40 percent reductions below 1990 levels in that early time frame, uh, the 2020 target. seems to me uh, we're going to go to Copenhagen looking like uh, we're a lot weaker uh, in terms of what we're willing to, to do here. The European Union is extremely cognizant of 
the fact that the Bush administration for eight years did nothing. That is why they booed the Bush administration uh, at Bali two years ago. They understand why we're behind. It's not the American people. It was the Bush administration. So the goals that we're putting together are very ambitious, and that is something which is appreciated by the uh, European Union, by other countries in the world, and it's why President Obama will go to Copenhagen as a hero. You had to give away a lot of these uh, emissions uh, credits in order to win support. Were you surprised that you ran into that kind of resistance from Democrats? And is there a concern that uh, giving away those uh, credits um, sets us up to repeat some of the mistakes that the Europeans did when they gave away a lot of the credits rather than auctioning them off? Uh, We have factored in the mistakes that was made in the European Union. We always anticipated that it would be necessary to protect consumers from rate spikes, and that is why some of the credits have been given away. We also knew that we would have to protect trade-sensitive, energy-intensive industries. We don't want the Chinese to be able to exploit a program meant in the United States to reduce our carbon footprint uh, by having our steel, aluminum, paper, and other uh, trade-sensitive industries destroyed uh, by foreign competition over the first five to ten years. And so, no, all along, Henry Waxman and I knew that we would have to build in transitional programs to help consumers, to help particular industries, so that uh, we made this transition in a way that did not harm our economy. And is this as strong as this bill can get in terms of its emissions uh, reductions targets? Is it kind of downhill from here, further compromises ahead when this hits the House floor or goes to the Senate? I think that our committee, the Energy Committee in the House, is an almost perfect microcosm of the House floor and the Senate floor in terms of the support which will be necessary to pass legislation. As a result, I believe that this legislation is a very good template for what is possible to ultimately be put on President Obama's desk for his signature. And I'm very optimistic that we can hold the goals that we've set uh, throughout the process. That's Energy Subcommittee Chairman Ed Markey, co-author of the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which just passed the Energy Committee. The bill still has a long road ahead before the full House takes it up, and the Senate, with its 60-vote threshold, could prove even tougher political terrain. As the climate change bill works its way through Congress, new research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology is showing that time for effective action on global warming is running out. MIT scientists were so startled by the results of their latest efforts at climate modeling that it took them nearly three years of checking and double-checking before publication. If no action is taken, the MIT group now expects temperatures to increase twice as much as previously thought. Mixed in this forecast are probabilities of the likelihood of particular climate outcomes. And to illustrate the odds of risk, the MIT Global Change Program has built a wheel of chance. It looks something like Vanna White would spin on the Wheel of Fortune, and the scientists call it the greenhouse gamble. When you spin it, if you get unlucky, you get high temperatures. If you get uh, lucky, you get low temperatures. And it really signifies what we as humanity are doing. We're spinning a wheel by putting emissions up into the atmosphere, and we don't, at this point, know where it will stop. John Riley is an MIT economist and one of the authors of the new climate change modeling study. 
I visited him at MIT to try my luck at the greenhouse gamble. First, we spun the wheel to see how much hotter the planet might get by the end of the century if we do nothing to cut our greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, you've landed on the thing that says 5 to 6 degrees centigrade, a pie wedge that says that. That's actually about the median forecast of what we're getting. In the previous work, we were thinking the median was more 2.5 degrees, and the highest, highest amounts we got approached 5 degrees. So now we have more than half of the wheel at above 5 degrees. So, you know, that is really a a hot planet. (laughs) So what's happened to change your estimate of what's going on? Is it that we've dumped more carbon into the atmosphere since you first did the studies, or are you getting better in your studies, or, or what? Well, since it's only been a few years since we've done this, it's not the fact that we've put in that much more emissions in the meantime, though we have been pumping it out at quite a high rate. It's that when we look at the trends and try to do forecasts, it's clear that China and India and developing countries emissions growth is very rapid. And then our estimates of how much heat would be taken up by the ocean have uh, been reduced. So the slower uptake of heat by the ocean leaves more in the atmosphere. So we were surprised because no one of these effects are very big, but they interact multiplicatively, and unfortunately they all went in the wrong direction. So that's resulted in this very much larger increase. All right, let's give it another spin here. Oh, this is not good. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is all the way up to 6 to 7 degrees, assuming that we do nothing about climate change. So this is a really severe uh, outcome. You know, combine that with 7 degrees, it's a 20% chance. And a 20% chance of going that high is a pretty large risk of pretty catastrophic results. All right, now let's give it a spin based on what you would call, what, very strong action, uh, sharp reductions? Yes. uh, This is the sort of wheel we'd be facing if we moved ahead with some of the bills in Congress now, and the U.S. did that and the rest of the world followed along with similar sorts of things. This is the sort of wheel we'd be facing if we actually adopted that policy. So what do you say? Let's give it a spin. Sure. So in this spin, we've done as well as we can possibly do with this policy, and we're still getting one to two degrees of warming. So that's kind of the minimum we can expect if we are really aggressive to reduce greenhouse gases and we get really lucky. And the odds of that are about what? About 15 or 18 percent of getting in that slice. So in other words, if you do the flip side of that, even with aggressive action, we're looking at better than an 80 percent chance that we're headed into a very uncomfortable zone. More than two degrees. And what would it mean if global average temperature went up by two degrees or three degrees centigrade? Uh, Temperature increases of two to three degrees are thought to be the point where you'd have uh, ice-free Arctic and melting of the Greenland ice sheet or the West Antarctic ice sheet could raise sea levels by meters. And so that would be a very dramatic change. How fast that would happen uh, is unclear. But once we get to that level, we've really then started probably an irreversible process. So these numbers are all based on going forward from today, but we already have, what, seven, eight-tenths of a degree of centigrade warming in the atmosphere. That's correct. So what are the odds of pretty much keeping the climate regime that we've got today? Well, there's no chance of that. (laughs) Even if we stopped all emissions of greenhouse gases this minute, 
there's inertia built in the system that would continue to have warming of as much of a half a degree between now and 2050 uh, without any more increase in greenhouse gases. And there's no way the world is going to turn on a dime and we're all going to stop driving our cars and turning on our lights tomorrow. And so even with the most intense efforts to reduce greenhouse gases, there's going to be more emissions. Somebody listening to us might say, oh, okay, so like we have an 80% chance of things being really very difficult, even if we have aggressive policies. Why bother? What would you say to them? If we don't bother, it's going to be much, much worse. Uh, In this debate, there's this idea that we're already gone over a cliff or something, uh, and that leads to the frustration that, well, if we've gone over the cliff, why bother? Unfortunately, there may be little cliffs, but there's many more cliffs to come. And so we're stuck with, I think, probably something on the order of two and a half to three or four degrees warming, even if we do almost everything we can. So we're going to have to be prepared for adapting to the climate change we see and really worry about you know, risks to agriculture, to coastal systems, to severe storms, to increased hurricanes, to melting of ice. Uh, the risks are there, and I think they're, at this point, some of them are unavoidable. But we certainly want to move ahead as fast as we can to avoid these really catastrophic outcomes. How well do you sleep at night? Well, I'm an uh, you know we scientists we're uh, ducks, right? So this is an incredibly fascinating problem for us. So <laughs> it's an interesting research topic, and so I guess I still sleep, but uh, <laughs> I I try not to think about what the real consequences are. John Riley is with the Climate Modeling Group at MIT. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, an egg hunt to help birds survive farm country. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. One section of the Waxman-Markey Climate Bill would require that utilities generate at least a portion of their power from renewable sources. One city-owned power company in Florida is already way ahead, loading up rooftops with solar panels. Ed Regan is the Assistant General Manager for Strategic Planning at the Gainesville Regional Utilities, and he says the renewable energy path for the Sunshine State is obvious. What we've got in the south is sunlight and biomass. Plenty of sunshine and a lot of growing things, and so that's what we're trying to harness over here in Gainesville, Florida. So let me see. The basic idea here, as I understand it, is this. Uh, The utility you work for collects a certain amount, about uh, $0.74 a month extra from all of its customers, and then uses that money to pay an attractive bonus to your solar customers for every kilowatt they pump into the electrical lines, huh? Yeah. What's very different about the approach that we've taken, and it's very common in Europe and other parts of the world, is rather than saying, well, let's only value solar electricity at the fossil fuel that it will replace— we kind of turn that equation over and say, what do we have to pay to make it a good investment? So you put a solar panel on your roof, you hook it directly to the utility company, and we buy all your output, and we use it to serve all of our other customers. So let's go through the math here. If I were buying electricity from your utility, how much do I pay for a kilowatt hour? Uh, if you were a residential customer, about $0.13. Cents. And if I were to supply solar from my roof, what would you pay me? $0.32. Cents. Hey, that's a pretty good deal. So uh, this apparently has changed the calculation for those big roof businesses and and homeowners, I imagine. Absolutely. Folks will say, hey, uh, I can put in solar, get rid of my electric bill. The utility will help me pay back the hefty cost of the installation. Hey, I may even make some dough here. That's right. So can you give me a, a typical scenario, please? 
Oh, a typical scenario is a grocery store or a uh, one of those big box pharmacies or an auto repair shop or a tire shop will put a fairly large array on their roof. This really works out very well if the owner of the system is a company that would be paying federal taxes because there's a lot of tax benefits that go with it. If you're a school or a church, you don't get those benefits. And so even with our feed-in tariff, it's not going to be a very lucrative investment. However, you have the opportunity to lease your roof to somebody that can get those benefits. And that's going on as well. So uh, what about the private homeowner who, who does pay federal taxes? Solar systems aren't cheap. How can they afford the upfront money to put something up there to capture that sunlight? What are my odds of getting a loan from the bank to put that thing up there? Depends on your credit rating, but I'd say it was pretty good, at least in Gainesville, because they're starting to become used to it. There's really two key aspects to our program. The first key aspect is we give you a price that's going to make it work, and it's 32 cents. The next key aspect is we give you a contract, and the contract says we're going to pay you 32 cents per kilowatt hour that you make for the next 20 years, and it's backed up by the full faith and credit of Gainesville Regional Utilities. With the the contract, with the interconnection agreement, and your good credit rating, this is a, a really nice investment because the the contract is you can use it as collateral. So uh, why do you want to do this? I mean, what's the benefit to you, the power provider here? First of all, our city commission has adopted the policy of meeting the Kyoto Protocol, which means that we need to get a substantial amount of renewable energy. The second thing is the community really uh, is committed to doing what they think is right in terms of uh, reducing CO2 emissions because of their contribution to greenhouse gases. And thirdly, uh, it's really surprising what this has done in terms of employment opportunities, uh, enthusiasm, the whole morale of the community. I've had the head of the uh, Electric Workers Union come up to me and say, gosh, thanks, everybody's got a job. It's a huge amount of investments going on, and it's just good for the community from that point of view. So, Ed, tell me, why do you think the utility you work for, this is the Gainesville Regional Utilities, right. sees a benefit in fostering a local solar industry, enough to become really the first place in the U.S. to do this on a major scale, yet other utilities so far do not? Well, Gainesville uh, is kind of a special place. It's the uh, home of the University of Florida, the Fighting Gators. Uh, we have a very uh, environmentally aware community. We have a city commission that's well in tune. And we've been undergoing a very very vibrant energy supply discussion since about 2003. We generate all of our own electricity, and we have a coal plant. We own a piece of a nuclear plant. We have gas plants. And in 2004, staff actually recommended a new coal plant. And that started a lot of discussion about climate change, global warming, various forms of renewable energy. And that's how we got to where we are now. And, you know, I've been in the utility business 30 years, and uh, I've been through a lot of rate increases and things like that. And I think we're all very surprised at how accepting our customers have been and how very, very little pushback we've gotten in terms of they know their bill's going up uh, a little bit, uh, but they see the benefit of it. They like it. My experience with our community is that people really care about the environment, and they want to do the right thing. Now, your utility is uh, owned by the city. It's a municipal uh, utility, or a muni, as they're called. That's right. Uh, I think an investor-owned utility would really have a hard time doing this because those regulations are all pointed in one direction, and that direction is lowest cost. Educate me for a moment, Ed. How many municipal power districts are there in the country that could start doing this if they wanted? Uh, over 2,000. Uh, I think they represent about 15% of the United States' load electrical and then there's probably another 10% that's uh, the co-ops that would probably have a similar option. So in other words, a quarter of America could go down this path without regulatory change? Yeah, that's about right. 
So what advice do you have for people who are listening who might want to get a similar offer from their power companies? Well, find out who does the planning and uh, take them to lunch. Ed Regan, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Ed Regan spoke to us from his office at the Gainesville Regional Utilities, where he is the Assistant General Manager for Strategic Planning. When President Obama brought the heads of the top automakers to the White House to announce new fuel efficiency standards, it was clearly big news for the auto world. But implications for the rest of the planet are still sinking in. Each company's cars and light trucks will have to average 35.5 miles per gallon by the year 2016, much sooner than under current law. The groundbreaking standards also bring the nation's first federal regulation of greenhouse gases by applying the limits on CO2 from tailpipes that California and other states had fought for in court. The president says the savings will be big, a cut in oil use greater than what the U.S. now imports from Saudi Arabia, and a drop in CO2 emissions equal to taking 50 million cars off the road. Ending our dependence on oil, indeed ending our dependence on fossil fuels, represents perhaps the most difficult challenge we have ever faced. Not as a party, not as a set of separate interests, but as a people. We have, over the course of decades, slowly built an economy that runs on oil. It has given us much of what we have, for good, but also for ill. It has transformed the way we live and work, but it's also wrecked havoc on our climate. It has helped create gains in prosperity unprecedented in history, but it also places our future in jeopardy. Dan Becker was at the White House Rose Garden for that announcement. He spent two decades fighting for cleaner cars as an advocate with the Sierra Club and now his Safe Climate campaign. I sat down with Becker to talk about cars and climate, and I asked him what it meant to witness this breakthrough moment in one of Washington's oldest environmental fights. Oh, it felt wonderful. After 20 years of fighting the auto industry, Seeing the CEOs lined up in a tableau behind the president with some cabinet members and some congresspeople, uh, I turned to somebody and said, it, it's the good, the bad, and the bankrupt. But it, it really felt good. You know, I, I think this is a very important step forward. Give me a sense of how this came together. It was just a few months ago that the industry was still fighting in court tooth and nail against this. Uh, what provided the breakthrough? And I'm guessing it had something to do with the fact that many of the major automakers were coming to Washington had in hand to, to save them. Well, it, it's hard to yield the bludgeon on environmental rules when you're shaking the tin cup in the other hand. The bailouts and the bankruptcies certainly have put pressure on the auto companies, but they've also run out of rope. The Congress rejected their pleas in 2007 to oppose CAFE standards, and, and they passed the law. The Supreme Court rejected their pleas and sided with us in the Massachusetts versus EPA case uh, that said EPA should go ahead and regulate global warming pollution from automobiles and that states like California could go ahead with their rules. And, of course, they want vast sums of money from taxpayers, so it behooves them to act as if they get it. Well, what uh, do we know about the kind of uh, vehicle fleet that might result when automakers you know, have to meet this new standard? Well, the, the vehicles probably won't look very different because at 10 miles per gallon improvement, 90 plus percent of the vehicles will only change under the hood. The engines will run the car further on a gallon of gas. The transmission will allow you to shift more efficiently. The aerodynamics will push less air out of the way when you accelerate uh, on a highway. 
all of those are things that can dramatically improve fuel economy. And they're all technologies that have been sitting on the shelves for the last 20 years. In the next round, the post-2016 round, that's when we can begin a much more dramatic shift to advanced technology vehicles that run on a different kind of system than the internal combustion engine. We have to get there, but this is just a first step preliminary to that. Shifting gears here slightly, uh, pardon the pun, but uh, what does this mean for the president's uh, larger strategy for addressing climate change, especially with an eye toward these international talks coming up at the end of the year? There are three moving parts here. Uh, The Copenhagen Treaty that you refer to, there is legislation currently on Capitol Hill, and there are the existing laws like the Clean Air Act that the president is using to raise these standards. The president is working on the last. For the purpose of the treaty negotiations, the U.S. has to come to Copenhagen with some real accomplishments and be able to, to point to those and say, look, We know we've been absent from this debate in the last eight years, but now we're back in the game. And here are real emissions reductions that we can show you that show that we in the United States are committed to curbing global warming. And by the way, if you've been hiding behind us and are in action, those days are done. Let's talk about cost. Uh, I've read estimates that uh, meeting this will require something in the range of an additional $1,300 per car on average. How does that work for consumers? Well, it will certainly cost more, although it's not clear that it'll be $1,300 more, to buy the better technology that will go into these new vehicles. The good news is that you'll save much more than that at the gas pump over the life of the vehicle. Uh, The president said the other day that in three years, you'll save more at the pump than it costs you to get the better technology. So this is a good deal for American consumers. It's a good deal for us to cut our oil addiction, and it's a good deal for the environment. And finally, it's a good deal for automakers, because if they don't start competing effectively against the Japanese manufacturers and other foreign manufacturers, they're not going to be here anymore. It's, it's a little sad, isn't it, that it took the crippling of our, our domestic auto industry, basically, to, to bring this about. It is really tragic that the auto industry couldn't bring itself, when it was in its prime, to make clean cars that Americans want and that are good for our society. We all remember uh, what's good for General Motors is good for the nation. Well, they finally found out that what's good for the nation is actually what's good for General Motors. And hopefully they will be able to uh, rebuild themselves by making the clean cars that foreign manufacturers make and sell, but that the American manufacturers had not. That's Dan Becker with the Safe Climate Campaign. You can learn more about the new auto standards at our website, LOE.org. Now, greener cars may help save the planet, but every day gas guzzlers and hybrids alike kill thousands of wild animals. Agriculture also has its own version of roadkill. If creatures nest in plantings, they face disaster when farm machines come through. Ducks are especially fond of nesting in vetch. That's a cover crop many farmers plant to boost soil nitrogen, and nests often get crushed. But one family farm in the Sacramento Valley has found a solution. Just before it's time to turn the soil in the spring, an army of volunteers retrieves as many eggs as possible. It's called Egg Aid, and this year reporter Beth Hoffman went along. Everybody will gather around here. 
Egg Aid is a little like the biggest, hardest Easter egg hunt you've ever done. It takes place in the overgrown rice fields of Lundberg Family Farms. This year, about 40 kids and 20 adults came out for the search. Now, I just would like to make a little identification for you on what some of these cover crops are. But today, the kids don't only learn about duck eggs. They'll also hear about growing rice organically, as the Lundbergs do. Bryce Lundberg holds up a tall plant with yellow flowers for the crowd of squirmy kids to see. That one there might be something you'd put on a hamburger or a hot dog besides ketchup. Something yellow. What might it be? Yeah. Mustard. Yeah, that's exactly right. The Lundbergs and other organic farms don't just plant a cover crop for winter. They let the mustard and vetch grow in the fallow field for a whole year. By that time, it's three or four feet high and provides great cover for ducks to lay their eggs. There's a lot of eggs and a lot of nests in this field, and you're going to be surprised how hard some of them are to find. This is Gary Kahulas, a volunteer organizer for Egg Aid. The idea for the egg search is to startle the ducks, then make your way to where the hen took off and look for a nest. The kids all grab hold of a long rope, strung with coffee cans full of rocks. Four-wheel ATVs come up behind, carrying empty egg cartons. Then Kerhulis gives the go-ahead. Remember, watch slow, watch where the hen gets up. There will be plenty of hens for everybody. Okay, ready, start. The kids walk and shake the rope as they go. The noise is deafening, and it's a wonder every duck for 100 miles doesn't immediately fly away. But they don't, and only when the line gets close do they suddenly shoot off. The kids search in the cover, gently moving the chest-high brush aside. It's thrilling to find a nest, the eggs slightly blue and still warm. A soft layer of down covers them, and the kids pick them up and gently put them in the egg carton. You want to pick them up and hand them to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gently, just like our chicken eggs. The Lundbergs and their neighbors have been collecting duck eggs now for more than 20 years. Wendell Lundberg, one of the original four brothers who started to grow rice organically in the 1960s, recalls how it started. And we felt almost guilty of destroying those eggs, but we, there's nothing we could do about it. And so we started having the men on the tractors carrying these egg cartons. But it's got really more than they could do. So a wheat farmer who lived nearby, Daryl Daly, came up with the idea of saving eggs and began hatching them at his home. Now, in fact, his main work is the hatchery. I was running a uh, wheat harvester, and I ran over a mallard nest, smashed about half the eggs, and I uh, took them home and hatched out four and released them into the wild. And then the next year, the neighbors would come with a hat full of eggs, and from four, it's turned into some years over 2,000. By lunchtime, the kids were tired and hungry, but they'd also found a lot of eggs. And a little girl found a nest of six. And we found a nest of blackbirds, too. 
three of them. It's hard to say whether the excitement of finding duck eggs will turn these kids into supporters of organic food. But 11-year-old Lexi sounds like she'll remember this day for a while. I was really excited. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I found the eggs. And we all got to pick up the eggs and feel how warm they were and stuff. Yeah, I learned that you could save lives (laughs) really easily. Yeah, that was really exciting for me. For Living on Earth, I'm Beth Hoffman in Richvale, California. Just ahead, batting cleanup for the green workforce. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. President Obama wants to create 5 million new jobs in clean energy, clean technology, and environmental cleanup. And though many people are looking for jobs, few have the right skills and few places exist to teach them. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman found a program in Massachusetts that's already specializing in green job training and has our report. Gary Kaplan is something of a leading economic indicator. As executive director of the Boston-based nonprofit JFY Networks, it's been Kaplan's job for the past three decades to anticipate the jobs of the future and then create workforce training programs to meet the demand. When biotechnology was heating up, JFY Networks taught biotech skills. When financial services began booming, it provided training in that. So the industry comes to us. And the industry, in effect, says, hey, we need some people, and they need to have these kind of skills, and we need them in about uh, you know, two months. Uh, can you deliver them? And we say, okay, so, uh, we need, uh, so what do we need? We need some this, we need some that. We pull all this together, and that's a workforce development program. We do what the industry asks for. You know, if the customer wants pink, you do pink. When the customer decides he wants blue, you do blue. Today, companies want green. The mantra is green jobs for blue-collar workers. But Kaplan says the U.S. educational system is ill-equipped to provide the specialized training for the emerging green economy. We have a huge problem in this country with workforce development. If we're going to have a growth of all of these uh, green technical industries, we need a tremendous number of people with technical skills. We're not producing them. Just 15% of the nation's high school students are enrolled in vocational education, and just a small fraction of those get training in green technologies. And a similar percentage of university and college students graduate with degrees in the so-called STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. That's where Kaplan's JFY Networks comes in. It brings together vocational ed, higher ed, and industry to form an ad hoc network that provides specialized training and, more importantly, certificates in emerging fields. These days, JFY Networks does workforce development in the hazardous materials industry, cleaning up asbestos, toxic waste, mold, and chemical spills. Students completing the 14-week course receive seven different federal occupational safety certifications, or what industry insiders call Haswhopper certs. This industry does not care if you have a Ph.D. from Harvard. You can't work. 
If you don't have these, these certifications, you cannot work. So the first question, you go to apply for a job, the first question is, have you got your hands whopper? If the answer is no, it's very nice to meet you. If the answer is yes, it's, uh, hey, suit this guy up. Well, we're getting suited up to respond to a hazmat situation. Mike Mace wriggles into a gray plastic jumpsuit. He's one of 18 students at this JFY Hazwopper certification class at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. This is a, a splash suit, and it protects you from having ha hazardous chemicals splashed on you. This is a cartridge respirator. Um, these are rubber boots, contaminant boots, splash-proof boots. Mike Mace, like half the participants in this class, already has a job. Some even have college degrees. Their companies are paying to get them their Hazwopper certs. The other participants are with JFY Networks. The cost to them is nothing. The 14-week course is funded by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. You should be starting to form a list of what equipment you need. Air monitoring equipment, spill containment equipment. We've got a ventilation machine out there if you think you might need it. Mike Fitz, one of the hazmat trainers, barks like a drill sergeant as the green recruits pour over book binders and rehearse procedures. You got to know what gets you hurt when you're putting the suit on and going in there. The PEL for ammonia is 50. It's a skin hazard at about 1,800 for most people. So at about 1,500, most places put you into level A. A short pep talk and Fitz deems the trainees ready to take their practical exam, cleaning up a mock hazmat emergency. We got to put them in the prom dress because it's time to dance. For six foot four Asmund Fabian, that means putting on a level A hazmat suit. It's the highest level, full containment. His air tank squeaks as he tests it. So we're just waiting until we get that okay, and then we'll, we'll finish suiting up, and then we're good to go. Boy, that can't be any fun to work in. No, but I take my time, you know. I want to learn all the procedures the right way. It doesn't bother me. You know, taking it easy. I've learned a lot of stuff in here. What were you doing before this? Laid off. Unemployment. I want to start a career that doesn't get shipped overseas, you know, and I'm always the type of guy who likes to jump into new things. The trainers divide the 18 Hazwopper hopefuls into three teams. Each will face a different scenario. Instructor Mike Fitz tells one team a pipe in an ice cream company is leaking a gas, possibly ammonia. The second team has to deal with barrels abandoned by a bankrupt chemical company. And then the third group has got an area around the corner here where we dumped a bunch of popcorn, packing popcorn, to simulate bird droppings that the birds have been coming in through a broken window and they've got a biological hazard. So they're forming into three teams to deal with those three hazards. What's the hardest part of this kind of exercise? For them, coming from a background where they don't have any chemical knowledge at all, trying to learn what the chemical hazards are and what we try to drive home the most is safety so that they're safe on the job. That's our goal. The JFY participants receive a semester of college chemistry and lab credits. The hands-on part of the course employs what hazmat instructor Jimmy Smith calls the popular ed method. We start with the concept that everybody, well, adults, all of them come with some knowledge. They just don't know how to direct that knowledge, right? So we give them the linkage to pull that knowledge together so they can make decisions. And, and some of them have never had chemistry, and we break it down to them. And it's really interesting to watch, see the, the light bulb turn on and say, ah, oh, I got it, Eureka. 
JFY student Andrew Hopper hasn't yet found that moment, so before his team sets out on their mock hazmat scenario, he steals a few seconds to hit the books. We're on the decontamination team, so we're just looking at how you do it again. you got a, you got a loose leaf binder here with quite a big loose leaf binder, yeah. actually. It's a lot, lot to learn? Well, they go over a lot of it. There's uh, so many acronyms, I couldn't tell you how many. There's a lot of them. Okay, well, well this one says positive pressure SCBA. This is a test. What's SCBA? It's your self-contained breathing apparatus. And uh, it's what you need for a level B atmosphere. It's a level B suit. And you can have it for a level A, but a level A is fully encapsulated, so it'd be inside the suit with you. A level B, it's on the outside. Did you know this stuff a few weeks ago? No, I didn't. The pace picks up, the teams spread out around the building, and JFY trainee Clarence Proctor pulls on his air mask and hood. Yeah, we're going in on biohazard. Birth can become a real problem. It gives us, like, ammonia. You know, it can knock you out. Then, as an instructor looks on, Proctor cautiously enters the room and begins taking readings of the air. Zero PID. Oxygen, 19. No, just 19, he said. That's Ty Small on the walkie-talkie. She's working on Proctor's backup team. They tell me different levels of the IDLH, um, the LEL. Right now we have um, hydrogen sulfide in there, so I'm trying to protect them from that. A few weeks ago, did you know what hydrogen sulfide was or LDL? No, not at all. Not at all. But this is a good program. It's a good opportunity. Before I was in this program, it was just really hard looking for jobs and things like that. But since I've been in this program, it's a real good opportunity. You learn a lot. The hands-on is excellent. So I'm really excited about it. The JFY trainees also go through mock interviews with prospective employers and learn how to write a resume. Based upon past classes, Larry Elgert, marketing manager at JFY Networks, predicts 80% of these students will graduate. People will wash out during the program. We, we simulate this program exactly like going to work. We tell folks, you're not coming to training, you're not going to school, you're coming to work. So we help, we, you know, I hold somebody to the exact same standard as I would somebody on my staff. So then when they get into the workforce, it's a seamless transition. The idea behind JFY Networks is simple, says Executive Director Gary Kaplan. Turn hazmat training into a three-letter word. It's a job. It's a dirty job, but it's a job. J-O-B. It's a job. It has a paycheck attached to it. It also has security attached to it. These jobs cannot be uh, sent off to China. There's no uh, business cycle involved here. It, It doesn't matter if we're in the bottom of a depression. When something gets spilled, you get sent out to clean it up. And we've had a lot of people say things like, you know, I go home and my my children say, gee, Dad, you know, you're cleaning up the environment. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're in the green movement. And with so much federal green in the economic recovery package aimed at job training programs, Gary Kaplan is planning to expand the JFY Network's offerings to include certification courses in energy efficiency and renewable energy. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Keller. Williams lives in a tiny house. It's just 84 square feet. She designed its layout on an area rug in the dining room of her previous home, a three-bedroom house in Portland, Oregon. Her new house is on wheels, but it's generally parked in a friend's yard. 
She says she wanted to engage more in her community and reduce her carbon footprint. She's also reduced her monthly expenses from fifteen hundred dollars to about five dollars. The cost of propane to cook and heat her new home. D, now you were living in a nice bungalow when you decided to pack it all away and drastically downsize. Why? Well, I think a part of it was just wanting to do an experiment on myself. I had taken a trip to Guatemala, and on that trip, you know, it was like a big spanking. You know, I bumped into all of these folks in Guatemala who were just incredibly generous and had absolutely nothing. It was kind of this comparison thing that kind of brought home with me, and then also, you know, just kind of taking a look at my world and realizing that our mortality is a real thing. And uh, if I did want to shake it up, uh, I needed to do that. So I'm wondering if you could take me for a virtual tour of your home. Here I am standing in front of it. What do I see, and what would happen if I walked through the front door? Well, my little house looks like a little cabin, so it's got a pointy little roof, a very small door. It's like two feet wide. I pulled that out of a dumpster, and it's gorgeous. And a little front porch, and there's a, a sleeping loft above the front porch, so that kind of creates this little nook of the front porch. Walk inside after you take your shoes off, and um, turn to the left. There's the kitchen counter, and uh, I have a crock that I I carry water into the house, and there's a a sink that drains into a, a jug under it. If you turn to the right, there's a toilet and where I keep all my boo boo dust. Boo boo dust. Boo boo dust in the Pacific Northwest. Those are cosmetics. Oh, excuse moi. <laughs> So you take a couple of steps, you're out from underneath the sleeping loft, and you're standing in this, what I call the great room. It's about a six-by-six-foot space and has an 11-foot ceiling with a big skylight, and that's that's my living room. I would make you crawl up into the sleeping loft to, to try it out because it's it's incredibly spacious, even though you can't stand up there. There's another skylight that's over the bed, which is just an incredible gift. I mean, there's nothing like being able to fall asleep staring at the stars or the moon or watching it rain. As I was coming over to this interview, somebody said, the 84 square feet now, does she add in her sleeping loft to that square footage or is it just the footprint of the bottom of the house? It's just the footprint of the bottom. I guess the rule of thumb for architects is that if you can't stand up in a space, you don't have to count it. So I think if I was to to pull a a real estate ad, it would be one bedroom with a bonus room. It would be like a quarter bath or something like that because I just have a toilet and I don't have a sink. Talk to me about exactly how you built this. You have obviously some building skills yourself. You have some carpentry skills. As I understand it, you got some shingles from a friend who stored them long ago, but where did you get your other stuff? I scavenged a lot of stuff out of debris piles, so... The roof of the porch, the overhangs, the soffits, all of that is salvaged. The um, skylights came from a salvage yard. The kitchen counter is an old pocket door. The wood that's on the walls, it's knotty pine. Uh, That came from a habitat restore. And uh, the loft flooring came out of a house fire. It's like the house kind of grew out of what was made available. It's kind of cool to be able to live in a space that tells more of a story than I went to Home Depot and I got a great price on this. Okay, now wait a second. You said you haul your water, but you have a toilet, so... I have a composting toilet. Uh So I've got these new chores that are a part of living in an 84-square-foot house. Managing my compost is one of them. Dragging water into the house for washing dishes and stuff like that is another chore. 
Okay, Dee, how does one scale down from a three-bedroom house to uh, something that is, uh, you know, 12 by 7, essentially? I had to do it the hard way. I had to go through everything. (laughs) I had, like, three piles. One pile was the stuff that was definitely going to get dragged out to the curb, and it was massive. It was, like, you know, the moldy old ice cube trays and saggy futons and, you know, linens and garden tools. I got rid of all of that stuff, and it was pretty easy. I haven't wondered, you know, gosh, I wish I still had all of that silverware that didn't match that I've been dragging around since college. That stuff was great. (laughs) Okay, so um, threw stuff out, and then? And then, you know, I was left with the stuff that was just overwhelming to try to figure out. You know, the old love letters, trophies. So I put those in four of those, you know, those plastic kind of bins. Mm-hmm. Over the years, I've I've gotten it down to about uh, a fourth of one. Okay, but what about going forward, Dee? I mean, every day there's stuff that we encounter <laughs> that we think we need to have. What do you do with that? Well, I kind of have this revolving door. So if I bring something in, I try to get rid of something. So if I get a new, you know, jacket, I'll uh, pilfer through and see if I can find something to get rid of. I'm I'm down to like Two forks. I started out with seven, I think, and so the forks are easy to let go of. <laughs> so I've acquired a new pair of shoes and got rid of a fork. I've gotten really good about asking to borrow stuff, too. So recently I had a big award event that I got to go to, so I borrowed a, a beautiful dress, and it really is nice to be able to have friends that have things. If you lived in town, I'd borrow something from you. <laughs> okay. It's been a really good lesson for me to learn how to accept people's gifts, and and my friends have been wonderful at at teaching me that. So at what point do you think you might decide you don't want to live in this small space anymore, or or maybe decide that you want to downsize even further? You know, I have thought about downsizing further only because there's a a lot of wasted space. And then more recently, I thought that was, that's foolish. (laughs) I'll go nuts. I need at least 84 square feet. And then as far as, you know, moving on to something else, I think if I, you know, fell in love and decided I wanted to, to be with somebody over a longer period of time than a few nights, I would definitely need more space. And I would like to think that I could take the stuff that I've learned in this giant experiment in the backyard and apply that to whatever living situation I have. Dee Williams lives in Olympia, Washington. Well, at least that's when her tiny home is parked there. Thanks so much, Dee. Thank you so much. To hear much more of our interview with Dee Williams and see pictures of her tiny home, go to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Ike Shrishkandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, Phil DiMartino, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. 
and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skull Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skull.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.